Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now I'm back with my very special guest. Umberto Gonzalez, fanboy journalist, Laura's fiance, and Rafi's dad. And we are talking about the, the Batman. Batman. Uh, here's a spoiler warning for y'all. Like we mentioned in the last episode, if you haven't seen the movie, we recommend you watch the movie first before you listen to us because we're going to be doing a breakdown of the crime scenes and it's going to be spoiler heavy. Not like any plot spoilers per se, but spoilers involving the murder scenes and the profiles of Batman and the Riddler. So once again, see the movie first before listening to this episode. Absolutely. So some of you would have seen it by now, and you'll know that this is really a detective story about an investigation that becomes very personal. And talking about things that are very personal and professional, I just want to start off by correcting the narrative. Now, those who know my work know that I don't normally use monikers, particularly self-appointed monikers that perpetrators give themselves. But I have to when talking about the Batman and the Riddler. But in real life, I don't do it because it gives the offender more power. It's why I don't like the moniker, the Zodiac. But unfortunately, everyone knows the unknown perpetrator by this self-appointed title. And this was an individual who was targeting young people in Northern California and as I said, he was never caught. He's believed to have killed at least seven victims, but he claimed he killed 37. Now, those confirmed, I do want to name them, because otherwise we always talk about the perpetrator and the victims become a footnote. So the confirmed victims are 17-year-old David Faraday and 16-year-old Betty Lou Jensen. 
19-year-old Michael Maju and 22-year-old Darlene Ferrin. Now, Michael survived the attack, but Darlene did not. Then there was 20-year-old Brian Hartnell and 22-year-old Cecilia Shepherd. Brian survived, but Cecilia didn't. And then there was 29-year-old Paul Stein. So as I said, the perpetrator claimed that he committed another 37 murders in letters to the newspapers, but investigators agree on only seven confirmed victims, and two of them survived, thank goodness. Now, murder and attempted murder, well, they are a terrible business. And with my work, even for something like this, it's always important to focus on the victims, first of all. And then you start to understand what's going on in terms of the victimology and the actual crime scene. And the victim holds a mirror up to the perpetrator. That's why it's called the victimology. A particular victim is chosen at a particular time in a particular location for a particular reason. And even in a movie like this, it's really important that that's the starting point. And kudos to Matt Reeves and Peter Craig, as the movie opens with us looking at the first victim who's been selected, targeted and stalked by the perpetrator. And the first victim is... Don Mitchell Jr., the mayor. The mayor of the city. So as we talked about in the first part, while he was a rich, powerful white man in his 50s who lives in a very big house and clearly he's very privileged. He's also a father. We find that out early on and the election is on. And as I mentioned before, the the murder is very, very brutal. Duct tape is used, blunt force trauma, his thumb's been removed whilst he's still alive. And that is something that the Batman points out due to the blood pattern analysis. So this is where we start to see the Batman as a detective. So what's interesting here is that you get to see a pattern that's been established in the comics. And it's the Riddler leaving a clue for Batman to figure out. In this case, it's a card. And the card says, let's play a game. Just me and you. So if I recall, the riddle goes along the lines of what does a liar do when he's dead? And of course, Batman gets the answer straight away. He lies still is the answer. So what's your take on that? Well, I think it's very interesting for sure. The fact that there is a card that is addressed to the Batman. So it draws him in immediately. But the fact that Batman gets it very quickly, again, that tells us that he is smart, the way his mind works. But the Riddler leaving that card or the perpetrator, well, it's somebody who likes to play games, for sure. They like the power and control. That's what I would be opining at that crime scene. Everything about it is organized, premeditated, the duct tape that was brought, and I mentioned that before, the weapon that's brought, but the no more lies, this card, and the card's most likely been written elsewhere and brought with him too. So I would be thinking along the lines of psychopathy for sure, but someone who's a game player. Yeah, I think I remember when the first trailer came out, they, there was a code or a cipher and a lot of internet sleuthers figured it out. I mean, we even did about an article about it on The Wrap, if I recall. That's right. But what we also learn is that, yes, the mayor was a liar and a hypocrite. 
Um, so that comes out that he's not just powerful. He's not just a privileged man. He's also a pillar of society, of the community. So influential. So a very interesting victim choice. Political, it could well be. It could be about terrorism. There's lots of things that you think about motive. But it's clearly someone who knows a lot more about who the mayor really is. And as I mentioned before, the crime scene issues here, yeah, they were a lot for me. Just too much going on in terms of people walking through the crime scene, cross-contamination, touching things, even talking without a mask. You know, you spray DNA everywhere. So to process that crime scene and to eliminate people and to actually find the perpetrator's DNA would be a massive challenge. So, yes, that's what I see when I'm looking at those scenes. What was the standout thing that you saw? The We don't get to see the Riddler actually kill the mayor. We see after the fact. And there's a saying that goes, violence is much more horrible in your head. Mm-hmm. So you, it's left to your imagination to see how he killed him. So I think it was a mount, what is it, the carpet uh, instrument. The instrument that used to raise carpets, it's, it's a blunt instrument. And then, like... He's hitting the mayor. We don't see it, but then you see it in, a, in another shot where it flies across the uh, the floorboards and it's it's bloodied and it leaves a print on the floorboard, which was that's what stood out to me because it's like oh that must have hurt. Yeah, um, that moment actually. Well, there's lots of them, and I, well, I agree with you first of all that the imagination is far worse. The things that we think about, and we didn't see all of the violence, but the first three blows, I think I talked about before, and he actually loses the, or loses his grip on the carpet fitting tool and it flies out his hand. So that tells you the type of force that's being used. But the fact that he spends time at the crime scene as well, he knows he's got time. So that tells us that it's very well planned and that he enjoys it. So this is a sadistic type of behavior. So I would be opining that they are looking for a sadistic psychopath and someone who has been stalking the victim for a considerable amount of time because he knew that the mayor was cheating on his wife. He knew that he was duplicitous. He knew that he lacked integrity. So again, that they're the sorts of things that I would be looking for pre offence-related behaviours like stalking, for example. So, yes, victim number two. Well, we meet him, actually, at the crime scene of victim number one because he is, or he was, the police commissioner, Pete Savage. What did you What did you make of him? I thought the device that the Riddler used to kill him was the most brutal of the traps. Well, sadistic, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the imagination, Oof. when you think about that, that he had a cage with rats attached to his face. And also that the Riddler was live streaming it too. Yes, he's social media savvy, Mr. Riddler. Yeah, so we know that he's like more of a modern day criminal. He's using technology, but he wants attention. That's another very important thing. It's the attention that he's craving, but he's also asking the public to judge on his crimes. And of course, we don't know all the detail of that, but we get a sense that this is somebody else who is duplicitous, who's lacking in integrity. And we also hear, according to Gordon, that he was targeted and abducted at the gym. So 
you know, an area of vulnerability when someone's not expecting something to happen, particularly influential men in various positions who might be security savvy, etc. That could be a vulnerable point. But the videoing of the victim, I mean, you can see the utter fear in his eyes because why it's so sadistic is that he knows exactly what's going to happen to him. And the Riddler enjoys that. You can see that he feels more powerful and is enjoying every moment of it. And that's true sadism, where someone enjoys putting someone else in fear. So the rat's eating his face off. Again, we don't see it, but it's horrific in every way. And this unmasking, it's a theme throughout the whole movie. But, you know, with the commissioner and with the mayor, you get the impression privileged white men, they're older. And that's not just being woke. It's about something that's factually true, that they're older, they're entitled, they make the rules and they think that the rules apply to everybody else, but not to them. So here we get the sense of an abuse of power and police corruption. And this is where we also see the Batman arrive on the scene and he starts to look at the cage. And he is the one that starts to understand that there are symbols on the cage, but he also finds the card to the Batman where others have failed. So That also tells me that the CSIs didn't do a very good job because they didn't process the scene as well as they should have. And they missed that card to the Batman, which says... The rat. Bring him out into the light. This is a very, very interesting clue because it pays off later in the third act. So victim number three is the district attorney. Gil Coulson, played by Peter Sarsgaard, who... I've known for almost 20 years. I haven't seen him in a very long time, but he was in uh, a mentor of mine, uh, Frank Reyes, who's the director of Empire. Peter Sarsgaard uh, did his movie in 2000, and the movie came out in 2002, and he was excellent. And I'm glad to see to see Peter excel in his career to the point he's now doing big... He's always done big tempo movies. He, he does tempo movies, he does indie movies, but he's a really damn good actor. And he's like, wow, even Peter's in this. So that was cool. Yeah, I think he did a great job. I mean, this character, well, we meet him in the club, don't we? The club within the club. And he's all about himself. He's it's a about, popping club, quite frankly. <laughs> it's a popping club, but it's full of off-duty police officers. And it's full of very important people who are fraternizing with organized criminals. So, and taking drugs and drinking. And he's all about himself and fretting about what these deaths mean for him. So full of self-importance and concern for him and himself only. And this is where we see him meet Selena and he starts to shark her down, basically. He has an interest in her. And yeah, so we see another very privileged man. So again, this the victimology for me, what jumps out is privilege, power, influential white men, but not just influential white men. I mean, it's the actual jobs that they do. Like this is the city's district attorney, the mayor, the police commissioner. These are the men that are key pillars of justice and the city. It's what they represent. So I would be thinking when he was grabbed and we, again, it was quite a sinister and insidious way that he was targeted, wasn't it, as he left the club? Well, we firstly see that his car is parked right outside the front of the club. So that tells you privilege, right? Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? 
Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Privileged and he knows a bouncer or two. <laughs> yeah, but next... He gets in the car and he sees the headrest is, has been removed and you just see it on the car seat and you see him trying to figure out what's going on. Now, bearing in mind he's drunk and he's done drugs, he's just he's about tired. to drive his car, which obviously tells us, well, tells me about him. He's disinhibited, but he's then, we hear duct tape being pulled and we don't really know what happens to him but we know that the perpetrator is behind him in the back seat so pretty horrific and we next see the DA emerge from the car at the funeral of and memorial of the mayor right when the car crashes through the memorial service and this is where we also see Bruce Wayne dive for the little boy and dressed up for the first time like in a suit yeah, because when he's not Batman, he's always, he's in the cave in like a sweatshirt or a hoodie or something, and this time he's actually quaffed. His hair's quaffed, and he's wearing a suit. And even people, oh look, that's Bruce Wayne, you know. So he makes an appearance. I'm sure he's there to pay his respects, but he's there for much more. He's there as Batman, investigating, see who shows up, seeing if there's any danger present. And like you said, yeah, he rescues that little boy. He keep, and it's interesting because the movie keeps going back to this little boy. Mm. He keeps popping up throughout the movie in various scenes, and him and Bruce. And excuse me, Batman always connect and look at each other. And I always thought that was an interesting, uh, how do I say this? Uh, not a mask, but a motif, actually, that little boy. Now, that's an interesting point you bring up, actually, because in crime scene number one with the mayor, we know that there is another bloody footprint, and it's the little boy's footprint, that he was the one who found his daddy. Oh. Yeah, I mean, horrific. So, again, crimes, and when there's a murder, there are multiple victims. So he's a secondary victim, that's important to say. But you do see the Batman look at him, and they clearly form some kind of connection, because obviously what happened to Bruce Wayne's parents, 
and you start to see emotionality in the Batman. And so I think that's what you're seeing again at the memorial service. He connects back with that little boy and it takes him back to him and what happened to him. Yes. What did you think of his demeanour, Bruce's, as he's coming up the steps and the way, yes, he's smarter. We see him in a suit for the first time. But what did you make of the way he carries himself and talks to people? And He's awkward. He, he, he was awkward. He didn't want to be bothered. He just wanted to be in his own element, in his own zone, and not mingle or talk with anybody. He was practically, he just went there as a loner, didn't want to be bothered with, and pay his respects and do his investigating thing. Yeah, I think that he is definitely awkward um, as Bruce Wayne. He's certainly not as the Batman, and we're, I'm going to talk about that. But he's also approached by the mayor-elect as well, and she wants to talk to him because she wants to get him involved in philanthropy and helping with her campaign and with the city. And I think that's an interesting moment because he's wealthy, he is a billionaire, he's got all this money, and the big question is, what's he actually doing for the city? Bruce Wayne. Sorry? I wouldn't be bothering you here, but your people keep telling me you're unavailable. You know, you really could be doing more for this city. family has a history of philanthropy, but as far as I can tell, you're not doing anything. And then, guess what happens? It can be cruel, poetic, or blind. But when it's denied, it's your violence you may find. Justice. The answer's justice. We finally see what happened to Gil Coulson. He reappears in his vehicle. It smashes through the memorial service. You've seen that in the trailers and stuff. And it crashes against the altar. He comes out of the car and he's got a ticking time bomb around his neck and talks about that's what Gotham is and what he symbolizes. And the car's spray painted and stuff. And the Riddler's up in the choir. Uh, Batman sees him up in the choir observing and he's just observing this action but uh, he also has a phone taped to his hand and there's the next riddle taped on his chest that's to the Batman and he goes I'm just a phone call away so he answers the phone the Riddler's there it's live the thing is being live streamed it's crazy and I think the riddle is something along the lines of if you are justice please do not lie what is the price of your blind eye? Actually, I think this is one of three riddles in this scene. Uh, it can be cruel, poetic, or kind. The Batman immediately gets that the DA is corrupt, and then the Riddler blows him up, and Coulson wouldn't talk because of fear. And th I mean, again, they don't show us the graphic violence, but it's felt uh, when that explodes. Like you said, the Batman gets it immediately. And it's quite important what you said about the Riddler being there. Like the Batman saw that he was up in the, the yeah, in the gallery and he just sees him as a silhouette. Now that's really important for someone like me. We often see that offenders, particularly when they're serial and particularly when they're psychopathy, they go back and they like to see the crime, the terror, the fear, they like to see it all unfold. And it gets them excited. 
it gets them off. You know, that's part of it, being able to witness their handiwork. So that was an important nod, actually, to some serial killers. So again, it tells me that Matt Reeves et al. have done their homework in terms of Mindhunter and all the material that they were reading about serial killers. And yes, I mean, pretty devastating as a as a crime scene because you've got lots of people there at a memorial grieving the little boy who whose dad was murdered. And then you've got all of this unfolding. And again, you've got all the police officers out on the perimeter and they send in a robot to assess the bomb that is rigged up to the cell phone, as you say. And it's only the Batman who is brave enough and courageous enough to go in. So... And then he opens the letter that's addressed to him, or the note, I should say. So yes, and rather than talk, Coulson decides that he's not going to say anything because the fear and what might happen to his family, whoever it is, and we don't know who the rat is, but whoever sits behind pulling all the strings, he's much more fearful of that person than being killed. So that also tells me that whoever this person is, they're very powerful and they're very dangerous. So the mission for the Batman is if he finds who the rat is, then he finds the Riddler. And he has to bring the rat into the light. Yeah, has to bring the rat into the light. And we know victim number four, well, we can't really say too much about victim number four because victim number four wasn't actually killed in the end, right? No, he wasn't, because victim number four was Bruce Wayne himself. Yeah, so that might have been a surprise and a, and a twist, but the sins of the father was the theme. And it's quite an interesting theme, which I'm going to say something about a bit later on. But what was also interesting is that the perpetrator didn't know that Bruce Wayne didn't open his own mail, and it was somebody else who opened his mail, which was Alfred. So, again, when doing research on somebody, on a target in particular, those sorts of things, you would expect them to get the basics right. But actually, in this case, that's not what happened. And I'm going to come back to that. Um, we have victim five as well. Do we want to say much more about victim five? Well, there were some things, actually, Umbe, that I didn't realise, and Victim 5 being Carmine Falcone, not just a powerful mob boss, but he was an expert marksman, right? Yes. Which now makes sense to me, because the way that he was killed was actually through a sniper rifle and an expert marksman. So there was some poetic justice there, which I didn't really appreciate when I saw the film the first time, but I did the second time. No, what's interesting to me about this scene is this is where that riddle pays off, bring the rat into the light. Batman's right under the, right under the, the light, or in this case, the street light, and then he, he remembers the riddle and says to him, bring the rat onto the light. Carmine Falcone comes outside his own club, and then boom, he's blown away across the street by the Riddler who's had a compound in front of this club the entire time. So basically the police and Batman did the Riddler's bidding and brought him out into the light so he could be shot by the Riddler. And then, as I mentioned before, victim six is Gotham City. Gotham being put on trial and indicted for abuse of power and corruption. And the Riddler talks about the city being a cesspool and he sees that he is holding 
I guess, these public trials of people, but he is the judge and the jury making the decisions. And I talked about six crime scenes, but there's actually seven. And why I say there's seven is because when they get to victim number five, what they then find is the Riddler's lair, which is a crime scene in itself. And I think it's very interesting. What was your take on it as, as we get brought into the Riddler's lair with the Batman and the police going through and processing things? What was your initial reaction seeing? First, I was shocked that he had a lair literally in front of Carmine Falcone's club this whole time. But it reminded me of, uh, remember in Seven when they discovered the the perpetrator's lair as well and the stuff that, and the journals, I think it was a nod to Seven because the Riddler kept journals and he every page had an entry and a drawing and newspaper clippings hanging up everywhere, especially those of Bruce Wayne, which the Batman then notices, and the the beginnings of the, the traps that he was working on for his victims and stuff. It was just very intricate and very detailed. It was a bit of a, it's a bit claustrophobic, you know, but you, the Riddler was sort of a hoarder of sorts as well, but he just... The, the journals were everywhere. And then I think a scene in the movie, while they're inside, they, they find a certain passage and they read from it as well and stuff. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, looking at his lair is a window into his mind. So being able to see the, all the notebooks, a prolific note taker, as am I, as is the Batman. Right. He takes lots of notes, too. You see inventions, things that he's created, all the prototypes for the rat cage and all the things that he uses. And he creates those things himself. He's an inventor and creator, just like Bruce Wayne and the Batman. So this is where I started to see some parallels and how obsessive he was as well. Everything about him is obsessive and detailed oriented and the fact that as you said all the newspaper cuts mainly of Bruce Wayne and the Batman who is the Batman and with the eyes scratched out Bruce Wayne's eyes scratched out now I have worked on cases where perpetrators in prison have done exactly that got newspaper cuts of their victims and scratched their faces out scratched their eyes out So you can see that there's some kind of obsession about Bruce Wayne, but also who the Batman is. And this is somebody who stops at nothing. Everything about him is obsessive and compulsive. And then we learn that somebody saw what may well be the perpetrator leaving the building and just sitting in a cafe opposite. And you hear lots of and see lots of police going to the cafe. And, you know, for me, I'm wondering what's going to come next. Is this him just sitting there? And of course it was. And he's just sat there. I call it Jupiter's delight. The smile that he gave to the Batman of I know something you don't know. And (laughs) that was done particularly well. I really like Paul Dano in this particular scene with the question mark on the coffee. And when he's asked, who are you? He gives a load of different names. What did you think about that? He's been, uh, he made a question mark inside with the the steamed milk in his cappuccino. And I've been trying to do that for you every morning ever (laughs) since. (laughs) I can't, (laughs) you know. Well, you can keep making the coffee until you, until you get it right. I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) No, but yeah, I think he wanted to be caught. 
he was, I mean, now in hindsight, I haven't seen the movie. Yeah, he wanted to be caught and, and brought to the, to, the, to the police station or to Arkham where they hold him. And uh, yeah, no, he, and he hasn't, I don't recall, because you've seen the movie twice, I did, and he has an exchange with, with Batman or, something, or the cops. They think they take him. And yeah. That, yeah, he requests the Batman. So he absolutely wanted to be caught. No two ways about that, because I know something you don't know. He's got another plan. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The, right. the point is, you got to work out, and for the Batman to work out what the ulterior motive is, and the Batman didn't know. And so there was a moment where there's the one-on-one -on -one exchange where he says, oh, you're not as clever as I thought you were. And you can see him really relish that moment of having power over. So I think that next scene is a very interesting um, scene because it's a nod, in my view, to Hannibal Lecter. Oh. You know, the behind the glass and um, the creepometer factor is high, actually. And for me, it's all credit and kudos to Paul Dano for that. He really plays the Riddler incredibly well, don't you think? Oh, my God, yes. It's a very deeply nuanced and layered performance. Everything about him. Now, I did read that it was Paul Dano's idea to wear the mask and the outfit, that he wanted to do that. And he felt it was much more in keeping, having his face covered, etc. Because if he's a serial killer, then of course he doesn't want to leave his forensics. He's thinking about forensic transfer. And that's quite right. But the way that he plays the character is, like I said before, it's the quiet moments. It's the insidious nature of his behavior. It's the smiles. It's the knowing. It's the really trying to get under the skin of the Batman and Bruce Wayne. It's using fear and the threat of violence to control. And that's really what the Riddler and the Batman have in common. They both share in using their masks for to be anonymous, but to really be their true selves. And in this scene, you see the Riddler actually say that. We hear, we're a team and he starts to say Bruce's name. He's trying to unseat the Batman, but he needed the Batman to bring, as you said, the rat out into the light to do his bidding because he hasn't got the physicality. But he also says something interesting, that he's been invisible all his life, and that's what he wants to change. So this, again, for me, is a modern type of killer, and it, there's a hark here to an incel-type perpetrator. I don't know if you got that sense when you were watching Paul Dano's interpretation of the Riddler. He, he came off as an insult to me. Obviously, someone was very socially awkward, but highly intelligent, 
highly detailed and highly meticulous, which I think is going to bring us to what I think your readers and myself are wanting to know the behavioral profiles of both Batman and the Riddler. Yeah, well, this is something you've asked me about a lot. And I think it's the theme in the whole movie, isn't it? Of who are you? The who are you in terms of the Batman? You hear Catwoman. Well, the nod to Catwoman, Selina, say, who are you under the mask? And the movie, even with each of the victims, it's about unmasking them. And the same with the Riddler wearing his mask too. So we know that masks give offenders anonymity. And as I mentioned before, Paul Dano actually came up with the idea for the Riddler to hide his identity, to reduce his forensic footprint at each crime scene. But it's also a nod to the Zodiac. And I really don't like using that moniker, but he used a mask too. But not just the clothing, it's also the symbol. You know, if that, it looks like a target of a shotgun when you look through a target. And that's also on the Riddler's, that's a key symbol for him as well as the cipher. So we know that there are nods there, but I do think the Riddler is just a very uh, insidious and terrifying type of perpetrator because of how organized he is as well and his ability to stalk victims, his ability to plan and his premeditation and his eye for detail and the fact that he wants to be more visible, he's doing it to be seen, it's the power and control that he's seeking. Now, the fact that he's seeking that power and control tells me that when he was younger, he didn't have any power and control. He felt powerless. And certainly through all my work, through all my psychology, behavioral analysis, unfortunately, when people feel powerless, most oftentimes they try and seek to take the power back. And so this is someone really wanting to be seen and to take the power back and to seek revenge and vengeance. You might want to know exactly, well, what is the definition of vengeance? Well, it's simply defined as punishment inflicted or retribution exacted for an injury or for a wrong. Interesting. Didn't know that. So who are you starting to think about when I mention the word vengeance and just unpick it? Um, vengeance. The Batman, of course. Yeah, I mean, they're mirrors of each other, aren't they? I would think so. They're mirrors in the sense that we later learned that why the Riddler felt unseen and invisible was because he was an orphan and he was in the orphanage and he was somebody who was overlooked. Even though there were promises made that the children in the orphanage would, would be taken care of, that didn't happen. And he kept hearing about this poor little rich boy who heard been traumatised and both his parents have been killed, but this poor little rich boy, and there's that scene where he's talking to the Batman about this poor little rich boy and this privileged poor little rich white boy was Bruce Wayne. And the Riddler talks about all the other children that are in the orphanage that no one cares about. Everyone just kept talking about Bruce Wayne. So that resentment, that anger, that festers in someone like the Riddler. And he makes a number of conscious choices that his trauma, he uses it as a force to, well, a force for bad, to do bad things, to take the power back for him to mete out 
retribution on other people because it makes him feel powerful. It makes him feel good about himself. And he enjoys using fear as a tool and targeted violence to get people to bend to his will, just as a terrorist would do. And it is very much a terrorist mindset. He loves that power and control. Well, who else uses fear and fear of violence and targeted violence to control in the movie? Batman, of course. Yeah. So for me, all I kept seeing between the two characters were essentially that they were mirrors of each other, but each of them had used their trauma in a different way. Although what I will say about the Batman is that, um, and Bruce Wayne, and we talked before that you see, um, you call him Bruce Wayne the whole way throughout, whether he's Batman or not. But I see that Bruce Wayne is, he's not just awkward, he's almost like the 10-year-old boy he was when his parents were killed. He goes back into that character and he's kind of stuck emotionally and socially. And he actually says to Alfred, he doesn't care what happens to him. Right. He's not doing anything philanthropic. He's not doing anything for other people. He's a recluse. He shut himself off and down to all outside influences. Even when Alfred's trying to get him interested in the foundation, he has no interest. What he's interested in is being the Batman. Now, for me, why he's interested in that, and it's just my interpretation, and you'll tell me your interpretation. You, you are the Batman expert, as it were, for 30 years but for me, he loves embracing the darkness and the darkness is the Batman. So when he dons that suit and that cowl, he feels all powerful. He becomes someone else. He is seen, he's powerful, he's strong and he wants vengeance. He is getting rid of the pain that he feels mentally and psychologically and emotionally the unresolved trauma, and he is projecting it and acting it out on other people, seemingly as a force for good. But ostensibly, did he really care, you know, as a younger Batman? I think in the movie, we start to see him evolve emotionally. We start to see him, equally as Bruce Wayne, care about other people again and want to do good and then become wanting to grow and become a beacon of hope and salvation to people. So we see that evolution of him, that it's not just about vengeance. It's actually about doing the right thing and helping people when it's of no benefit to you. And I think that's what we start to see towards the end of the movie. That's the hope. Whereas the Riddler is just dark. Everything about him is dark. He doesn't want to bring hope. He's not doing those things for the right reasons. He's doing it because it gives him a sense of power and it makes him feel good. Yes, Batman has a very interesting character arc in the movie. In the beginning, he's vengeance. And I do agree with you, he starts to undergo change like as he goes through his journey and he's, he meets Selina numerous times throughout the movie and he gets more comfortable around her and, and then what happens to Alfred obviously affects him. But his character arc is very interesting because at the beginning of the movie, he's singularly focused and he's vengeance but then i think one of the best shots of the movie and i wouldn't be surprised if this movie gets the best cinematography nomination during award season next year that shot when after in the the nomin of the climax of what happened in in the, with the mayor and after the destruction he has a torch he has a and he's leading gotham citizens to safety he's he's helping victims of the Riddler's attack 
seek medical attention. He takes, you know, that uh, he has the torch and he's walking. It's an overhead shot where he's walking through water and leading the people. And that's when Batman becomes the Batman of the people, not of himself. He's not vengeance. That's when he becomes Batman. In the beginning, he's vengeance. At the end, he's Batman because Batman is in service to the citizens of Gotham and to Gotham City himself. And as Christopher Nolan did in the previous movies, The Dark Knight. And, and then The White Knight, which was Harvey Dent. And I don't know if we'll get Harvey Dent in this movie, but yeah, what you're discussing is his character arc for the purposes of the movie. And he, we see him evolve, he matures, he, he, and he grows. There's a lot of emotional and personal growth. And I'm gonna, it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves in the future films. Yeah, I think that's interesting, actually. I think Selena in particular, she's like a foil to him, isn't she? Yeah. But they also have a similar arc because she saw her mother strangled in front of her and she wants vengeance. She wants to know who did it. But there are some softer moments to her with him. And that's where you see some of the emotionality. And I think you talked about this dance between them. They sort of cancel each other out on the negative things but you see the moment that when the city is falling and just before the batman rescues people you see a moment where the batman becomes very protective towards selena and he actually loses control when one of the individuals whose mask tries to harm her and you see him punching that guy because he's so angry and you see this moment momentarily you know he's lose he loses control and he had said to Alfred before that that he didn't want to lose anyone else. And it's almost like a reawakening for him of feelings at, that evoke, you know, very strong feelings in him, things that he's pushed down and buried down for a long time. So that, for me, is the nod to post-traumatic growth, okay. that that's happening and we're seeing it before our very eyes, right? And this is, again, my interpretation of it. I'm not the Batman nerd that you are, but... But it's an accurate, it's an accurate interpretation. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, because we haven't discussed that part before, and in fact, a lot of this, as Umbe knows, he's very excited that I'm reading Frank Miller's Year One. Oh my God, she's reading Year One. I can't believe it. He didn't think that would happen. I and, didn't. Um, I'll be honest, I didn't. But you, there you are. You're going through it, reading. Well, a couple of pages in, I mean, granted, because time has been a real challenge for me, but I do think there's a very interesting choice by Matt Reeves in the Nirvana song. And I keep going back to that. There's something in the way. Again, my interpretation of that is there's something in the way the Batman is in his own way. Okay. And he needs to get out of his way. And so that's how I interpret that song. Every time you hear it coming on, it's him moving through another growth stage and he actually does get out of his own way towards the end. So that's why I feel the connection to the music. I mean, I love Nirvana anyway, and I think it is an interesting choice, but if he would only get out of his own way, then he would move into his full potential growth. Whether he gets there or not is another matter. What do you think about that? Very interesting, very detailed and interesting point of view. I didn't even see it that way, but it does make sense. I didn't know that every time that song came on, he was going through a growth stage with his character arc. And now in hindsight, I could see how that is. So 
That's interesting. I think if you see it a second time... And I will. There are so many... Yes, I'm not saying that, sort of, you know, (laughs) smiling away. But um, you do see and hear things slightly differently because it's a movie where so much is going on, actually. But yes, getting out of his own way. The fact that often when people have trauma, they look for distractions and they look for something to immerse themselves in that takes them out of their feelings and their thoughts. So that's why a lot of people then start to help others or become fixers, because it means they can push and stuff their own feelings and thoughts down and they concentrate on other people. And I feel that's what the Batman does continuously, that he likes to push out his pain by exacting pain on others. And the pain and what he does, it's a distraction for him. And sometimes, and we talked a little bit about, you know, his back and the scars that he has. Well, sometimes when pain is psychological, when it's in the mind, people, some would rather it becomes more of a physical pain because then at least they feel something. So I also wonder whether those scars, I mean, of course, his fighting and his street fighting, it's very physical. So of course he's going to get hurt. But there's also something about transferring the pain psychologically and emotionally into something physical. That's interesting you brought up the physical because that's also a nod to year one. Frank Miller in year one wanted to establish Batman as a street level scrapper who gets his licks, who gets who gets hit and receives punishment. And you see he sees the results of his actions. He's he's kind of sloppy and careless. So there's a scene in the movie when uh, Batman tries to escape from uh, the Gotham Police Department and he goes all the way up to the to the clock and then he activates his power glider but then when he has a very rough landing because he's still trying to figure himself out and figure out his craft and all that so there's not to that but yeah he's the beginning of the movie establishes him as a street level scrapper and yeah that's a nod to Frank Miller's year one which you are currently reading yes which I should get back to but yes a few pages in a lot more to catch up to you of 30 years. Um, but yes, I, you know, my interpretation, of course, I see things slightly differently because I'm looking at uh, things as a trauma expert and somebody who behaviorally profiles all the time, you know, and as a feminist, of course, where I do like the fact we see Selena going out to avenge her mum. You know, the something happened. She doesn't know who did it, that her mum was strangled and... I kind of feel that Selena, the nod to Catwoman, that she is a feminist herself. She does challenge Batman on his privilege or potential privilege of where he comes from, as does the Riddler, talking, well, this must be somebody, you must be somebody who comes from money because only someone with money would say the sorts of things that you have. And Selena tends to be much more of a, you know, street fighter, street girl, very sassy and has her has a lot of wherewithal about her but she is very clearly out for vengeance because she wants to honor her mother and of course we find out who did kill her mother and it kind of goes full circle but it becomes a very personal investigation to the batman and i don't think he was expecting that so it opens up lots of things for him so your prediction how's this movie gonna do what do you think uh, as we're recording this right now, it's Thursday night and the movie is going to open. Well, it started playing today around three o'clock and it's opening weekend. Uh, I think the studios are estimating or the rival studios are estimating north of 100. Warner's is being conservative. 
they're predicting lower than that. But I feel the movie's going to make anywhere from 125 to $150 million domestically here in the United States and maybe a quarter of a billion dollars worldwide. But personally, I wouldn't be surprised if this movie in America ends up making about $175 million opening weekend, which would be a record for, for that because the last couple of Batman films opened to about 160 million or so. So I would think this movie, because there's no nothing else, COVID rates are going down, people going back to theaters, there's a brand new superhero movie out, or like I said previously, a true crime film that happens to have a costume vigilante in it. So you, 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 get, the, you get the fanboy audience, you get the true crime crowd. And I think it's going to do a little a little north of 150 i wouldn't be surprised if it does 175 that's just my prediction you know so i'm going to pay to see it again in imax laser here in los angeles at the chinese theater so yeah i'm expecting big things and the launch of a franchise a brand new franchise of grounded detective stories looking forward to that for sure yeah, I'm absolutely looking forward to more of the detective side, more the profiling side. And and I do believe it will appeal to the true crime um, crowd who perhaps haven't gone to see this film. That's why I brought you. And look how you you spit out two episodes. You profiled the Batman, the Riddler, and you broke down the crime scenes. Who else am I going to think of to do that? You're the only one I know that does that. And here you are. You did it in two episodes, babe. Congrats. Thank you. Well, it's been good having you on and it's fun talking with you about this as well. Yeah, no, it's a passion of mine. I'm very lucky and blessed that I could do this as a career, quite frankly. But our worlds collide. We we got a costume vigilante and a true crime film. And of course, I'm going to take my true crime fanatic to see that. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I hope that you've all enjoyed our conversation. It's unscripted, as you can probably tell, but we wanted to keep it real. So, yeah. Hit us up on social media. Let us know what you think of the movie and also what you think of our conversation and the psychology and the behavior and the profile. So thank you very much to my very special guest, Umberto Gonzalez. It's been great having you on here. And to my lovely listeners, remember to be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Adam Gross. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.